Beloved, let us hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. This is a uh, interesting passage. It's a challenging passage. Uh, it's a passage that raises a lot of questions about the text, and uh, it does not necessarily yield the most um, easy answers. We preach this text because we believe this text has uh, universal truth and timeless truth in it, and that's what I want us to fix on today. This text is a reminder of a truth that many of us and the world around us choose to avoid and forget. And that is that God judges the earth. And that God's judgment does come. There is a limit. We have used this image of uh, a chasm to describe uh, the the storyline of Genesis 4 through 11, uh, the idea being that because we have been expelled from the garden through Adam and Eve's sin, we are in a a state of being far from God because sin separates us from the, the loving presence of God. And we are in a orientation that is away from God, that we are pointed towards ourself and not towards God. And so sin has put us in a condition that is far and away. It has created a chasm between God and mankind. And that chasm is large, and it's unbridgeable from our side. Genesis 6 exists to remind us that this condition cannot be acceptable to us. Genesis 6 reminds us that we cannot just go on our merry way with the fact that there is a chasm between us and God. 
that chasm is a crisis, a crisis that will one day be remedied by God's decisive, holy action. We live in a world that that has this question, will God judge? We go on day after day after day. We see uh, numerous examples of unrighteousness and wickedness. And, and we ask the question, is, is God going to judge? Should we use the, the record of so many days where God apparently has not judged to make us hardened to the thought that he ever will, to make us doubt that he will? That is why Genesis 6 lives in our Bible. Genesis 6, 1 through 8, shows that humanity's sinfulness reaches crisis proportions that require God to judge the earth. And then when that crisis comes, God has judged, and God will judge. What we have to grasp from this passage is that sin necessitates God's judgment. Sin makes God's judgment necessary. And so the title of the, the sermon that we, that we have today is, is called Going Under. <laughs> Going Under is, is obviously reminding us of the, the great deluge that is coming, but the phrase going under, we're familiar with that in our society. That's, that's when you are at the point of bankruptcy. That is when you are finished. That is when the only thing left to do is for the bankers to come in and take everything away and finish off the existence of the business. Genesis 6 is humanity's going under. They have reached this place of which God will tolerate no more. But even in the, the world that is at the condition of being ready to go under, we still see God's thread. We still see the thread of his commitment to his promise. We see his thread in those last few words. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6 is a text for the unbeliever, for the person who has sat in church week after week after week, but having never truly committed, having never truly believed, like the person that we warned against last week, a person who has never truly belonged to God, that has never truly been with God, as a person who has never really believed God. This text is for you, the unbeliever. Because it asks this question, are you ready for the point that God comes to the crisis and deals with your sin? It's, it's a chapter for the believer as well. Because we have to ask ourselves as those who have been redeemed from the judgment through Christ's crucifixion, are we showing the world the seriousness of God's judgment? Are we making clear the great crisis that sin brings upon the world? Do we live a life that communicates, cling to Christ, save yourself 
from the judgment. What this text must do for us today is to settle in our mind that judgment is necessary and that judgment is inevitable. We are going to go through this text and see four reasons why God must judge sin. We're going to see in verses 1 through 4 that sin defies God's boundaries. Sin defies God's boundary. This is the first reason why sin must be judged by God. It defies God's boundaries. Now, we we know the the word defy. This isn't a complicated word. It simply means to to be, uh, uh, to reject, to overthrow, to refuse to accept any boundary, to be high-handed and push across what has been set in place. Defying God's boundaries is what is going on in verses 1 through 4. Let's read those verses again. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That may be the strangest paragraph I know of in the Bible. It's it's hard to uh, make sense of it. It's, It's like J.R. Tolkien took a turn. Uh, <laughs> but it is, uh, it is here for us to grasp and to, to, to wrestle with. We have to recognize that sometimes parts of the Bible uh, get shrouded in mystery because of our distance from, from some of the context that made these words clear to their original hearers. I don't think at the end of of talking about these verses, I am going to remove the strangeness or resolve the complication that some of these words may have in our our very uh, 21st century minds. I'm going to go about giving you some of the ways that these verses have been looked at and then try and distill that into a principle that is common to all all of the suggestions. The theories all surround who are the sons of God? In this passage, what what does the author here mean by the sons of God? There are really two uh, major competing uh, viewpoints on that that go through the history of the church. The first is to take sons of God as heavenly beings, creatures like angels or or like demons or or some sort of, of spiritual entity. The second option is to look at the sons of God as referring to the godly line of Seth that we come across in Genesis 5. And so we're going to look at each of these in turn and kind of look at what they're trying to say and, and uh, what are their strengths and, and what are their weaknesses. If we, if we look at sons of God as speaking of heavenly beings, then what, what is the sin that is fundamentally being described here? It is a sin of defying the uh, separation of heaven and earth. 
what seems to, to be going on here from this understanding is that the, the uh, barring of man from the tree of life, from the tree of immortality, is trying to be worked around. We looked at uh, Genesis 5 where we saw the words, and he died, and he died, and he died. The idea seems to be that in, in some manner of, of, of combining the sons of God with the daughters of men, that perhaps they could overcome, they could transgress the boundary of mortality and get the immortality that God judged and took from them. This uh, fits the pattern of the sins that, that dominate Genesis uh, 3 through 11. You'll see in, in uh, the, the description of verse 2, the verbs, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, which is the same word for good, and they took as their wives any they chose. Those words saw, good, and took are the same words that we read of Eve when she decides to transgress God's boundary and eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. If you go forward into the Tower of Babel, the, the story of the Tower of Babel is, is another effort by man to try and get to heaven without going through God. And so uh, this interpretation fits a pattern of transgressing boundaries that God has put in store. It also makes sense of the punishment that God declares. He looks at this effort of the uh, sons of God and the daughters of men, and his punishment is to limit life, to say 120 years is all that you can have. That punishment would fit the crime if what is being sought here is a form of immortality. This interpretation also makes sense of the Nephilim. You know, these Nephilim, the, the creation of these unions? I don't know. And then there is other uh, texts in the Bible. Job uses the word sons of God to speak of angels. And the little letter of Jude makes some mention to this episode that comes very close to supporting what has just been described, that this is some sort of marriage between uh, angels or, or spiritual beings and, pe- and people. What, what can we say against it? That's ah, weird. <laughs> That's the first thing that, that, that I just, it's weird if this is uh, what, what it is. It doesn't, it certainly does not fit our categories of, of what we're used to. It's, a, it's an outlier in terms of what we are uh, made to kind of be used to from the, the scriptures. There's the big question mark, is this even possible? Uh, Jesus says that uh, angels do not marry when he uh, talks about uh, everlasting life. However, do not and cannot are not the same. So I don't know if Jesus meant cannot when he said do not or he just meant do not. I don't know. And the other big question about this interpretation is, why is the judgment brought on man? It seems like the transgressor in this story would be the sons of God, the, the spiritual beings, and yet the punishment goes towards man and the rest of creation. So that's, that's option one. Option two is the, is the view that what we're talking about is the godly line of Seth, 
And, uh, and what is being talked about is that they are the sons of God and that they have come to a point where they have started to see the daughters of men, which in this case would be the daughters of the Canaanites, and start saying, well, I think that looks pretty nice too. And we have the holy line of Seth and the unholy line of Cain intermarrying. In which case we have another example of, of, of a transgression of God's boundary. The, the holy and the unholy are being mixed together. I have in the past preferred this interpretation because I think it connects the story that is developing in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 with the line of Cain and the line of Seth. But it's not without weaknesses. Uh, to make this interpretation work, you have to uh, use the word sons of God in a way that it's never used in the rest of Scripture. You have to take the meaning of man as two different senses in the exact same verse. You don't have any explanation for the Nephilim. How does this relate to the Nephilim, and how does this relate to the punishment of limiting life? All right, so you have uh, just been given a crash course through all that stumped me for most of the week. Which, which is the, the verdict? I honestly don't know that there is a clear verdict. I think that the uh, evidence is hard to, to prefer one over the other. I do think, and, and this is kind of against my desire, I do think that the version one is a little stronger, a little bit more convincing but not enough so that I, I can say in front of you, here's what you need to go tell your friends this, this passage means. So what I want to focus on is what is common to both of these. What is, what is the story that is being described here? What is the sin? Whether it's angels and men or whether it's holy men and unholy men, what is the story? The story is that the sin that is being committed in these passages is a sin that is transgressing God's boundary. God has placed a boundary either between earth and heaven or between the, the line of holiness, the, 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 the line of promise, and the, the uh, line of the Canaanites that was not meant to be transgressed. And so what has happened here in Genesis 6 is that that sacred line has been crossed. Sin has come to a place of saying, even this boundary I'm going to move past. Even this I'm going to claim I know best. And this boundary being particularly grievous is the, the setup to the point of crisis for judgment. These, uh, the, 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 the sin here is transgressing. Now, I don't know that either anybody in this room needs to be warned against either of these sins, particularly. I'm sure that uh, uh, most of you are safe from these sorts of transgressions. But what is explained here very clearly is what sin is. Sin at its heart is transgressive. Sin at its heart defies boundaries, defies rules. It is motivated by that inner monologue that says a little further, go a little more, do a little extra. Sin is offensive and defies God because it is first and foremost a declaring 
that the law that you follow is the law of yourself. And so we have in sin a defiance of God's boundaries, a setting up a law of self, and in effect, in sin, we choose lawlessness. We choose no boundaries set by God. Because no matter how small the sin that we commit, we are saying that the one who made the boundary is not wise and not good. I will make the boundary for what is wise and good for myself. And so when every sin... There is a defiance of God's boundary, God's law, and a celebration then of lawlessness. The Apostle John made this clear in his uh, first epistle, 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. When we recognize that sin is lawlessness, we see why judgment must come. Because lawlessness defies the lawgiver. You can't not defy the lawgiver when you transgress sin. It is, it is like a judge whose uh, job is to uphold the law. If that judge does not uphold the law and allows lawlessness, the judge himself cannot continue to exist. So if lawlessness becomes rampant, the question that is forced upon God is, are you going to uphold the law? Are you going to judge? Sin must be judged because God can't go away. Lawlessness cannot be entertained indefinitely. Sin must be judged because it defies God's rule. But second, we're going to see the second reason why sin must be judged in this text is that sin defiles God's creation. Sin defiles God's creation. Look at verse 5, the first half. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Sin here defiles God's creation. What do I mean by defile? Defile is, a, is a, another word for corrupt, to, to make dirty, to make offensive, to ruin. Those are the, the, the meanings of the, the word defile. And why do we say sin defiles God's creation? Because as we see in this text... The creation is being contaminated with the wickedness of man. The earth is a theater of wickedness. From a certain perspective, you can take the whole flood and understand it as an act of cleaning. The flood is a cleansing of the earth of the stain of sin. In Genesis 3, the ground is cursed because of the sin of Adam. The, the, the ground becomes a victim of Adam's sin. In Cain and Abel, the ground cries out with the blood of Abel. And here we see, as, as, as we'll see in Genesis 6, 11 through 13, that this, this uh, sin that has become rampant on the earth is corrupting. Genesis 6, 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, 
For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You see, the earth is filled with violence because of them. This earth has become defiled. What is the word that God uses to describe the flood? In verse 7, he says that he is going to blot out the crea- man from his creation. Blot out. And that, that, that stresses that it's going to be a deep clean. There is a stain upon the earth, and he is going to blot and blot and blot until that stain is removed. The word that is used for blot out is in other places used for cleaning. There's a proverb, Proverb 30.20 speaks of, the, of a woman wiping away her face, cleaning off her face with the same word used here for blot out. You see, God created this, wor- this, this, this world. In, one, in, in Genesis one thirty one. he saw all that he had made. He looked at it with delight and pleasure, and he said, it is very good. That is what God did when he created. He created a very good creation. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is allowed to see the, the throne room of God, and he sees the seraphim, flying around God, and they are singing at the top of their lungs incessantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What do they say? They say, for the earth is filled with his glory. You see, the earth was created as a theater of God's glory. But what we see sin doing is polluting it. And defiling it. God looks at his creation that originally he, he, he delighted in and called very good. And as he looks down in Genesis 6, he sees only violence and wickedness. And an earth crying out with slain blood. God judges sin. Out of love for his creation. We often get, uh, uh, we have a hard time with judgment. Why does God have to judge? Judgment is like a, a loving doctor who looks at his patient and sees rampant cancer. His love for the patient is shown through his total, merciless, relentless attack on the cancer. To love the creation means he must be a destroyer of the cancer, the sin, rampant upon the earth. Beloved, sin must be judged because God is good. If he were to not judge, he would not be good. He would not be loving to his creation. Third, though, the third reason why sin must be judged, we learn from this passage, is that sin desecrates God's image. Sin desecrates God's image. As verse 5 continues to say, and that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Now, desecrate is probably not a word that we're using very often, 
that it's the right word. Desecrate means to, to take what is holy, to take what is good, and to profane it, and to make it common, to make it uh, unfit for its purpose, for holy use. This is the third purpose. Sin desecrates God's image because you recognize man, male and female, was created as God's masterpiece, was created with the image of God, the likeness of God, was placed upon man. It was placed upon man because man, as God's masterpiece, was to go through the earth and reveal God's glory and God's goodness and God's nature to fill the entire creation with a reflection of God's glory. We had a sacred purpose in our creation to know God and to reflect him. But in sin, those who were created to be reflectors of God's glory have become reflectors of evil, have become self-idolaters. They have taken the way of Cain, the way of of rebellion, the way of of self-centeredness, the way of warfare towards God. Man in Genesis chapter 6 is is not bearing the likeness of God. It is bearing the perversity of sin. We see in Genesis 6 God's verdict on man's heart after the fall that it is depraved. Genesis 6-5 is such a humbling verse. What does it say? It says that all, all man, there there is no intention of, of reading this verse and looking only at your neighbor. All mankind. It is total, this this depravity. Every intention of the thoughts of man. Every intention. The the reason that we sin is not outside of us, the reason that we sin is not uh, from our environment. The reason that we sin is that our hearts, every intention, is sinful, is bent against God. And as if to make sure that we don't miss this, it's always, look at how it ends, only evil continually. How can we say that man's heart is only evil continually? I mean, don't we, don't we do good things? Don't we have good thoughts? Don't we do nice things? Well, you must recognize that the definition of sin begins with why you're doing it. What's your motive? And if your motive does not begin and end in the first great commandment, love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then even in your very best and noble acts, you are acting in rebellion. You are acting in defiance. You are acting in self-idolatry. 
Because it is not to glorify God. It is not to reflect His image first and foremost and completely. Romans chapter 3, 10 through 12, make sure that we don't miss this in the New Testament, that we don't miss this on the other side of the flood. We are told none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the fruit of the Imago Dei, the fruit of the image of God, is to fill the earth with sin. This is what has happened. Sin has made man desecrators of God's image. And how serious is that? Well, if we go to Leviticus chapter 10, we read a a very telling passage about what it means when we become desecrators of what God has made to be holy. Leviticus chapter 10, we are told after the the tabernacle has been constructed, after all of the instructions for the tabernacle have been laid in place for the people of Israel, the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu are in the tabernacle doing worship. And here is what we read. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You see what's being described here. Nadab and Abihu were were priests. They were to be representatives, reflectors of God to the people. And because they defied their job, their role, not by, by doing something seemingly large, but by simply doing something unauthorized, something God had not commanded, they are consumed by fire. Judgment from God breaks out immediately upon them. And the reason is that those who are to be his representatives must be sanctified. And that all people, in all people, he must be glorified. Beloved, what what is told to us in Leviticus 10 is just something said early for everybody who takes the image of God and desecrates it. Because the image of God means that you are to be a reflector of God's glory. Leviticus 10 tells us that when we uh, uh, desecrate that glory of God, we bring judgment upon ourselves. Sin must be judged because God will be glorified. When we choose sin, we are in a crash course with God's pursuit of glory. That's only going to end one way. And Genesis 6 serves as a reminder. But fourth, sin grieves God's heart. 
the most troubling verse in this whole passage is verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Whoa. Is that, do you hear that? God was grieved. He regretted that he created man. Sin is personal to God. Sin grieves him at his core. That's what the word heart means. Our sin doesn't just glance off of God or doesn't just live in the periphery of of God's majesty. It offends him straight to the heart. The very essence of God is grieved. The wholeness of God is exercised with grief by our sin. Sin must be judged because God can't stand sin. He hates it. Psalm 11.5 declares the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I mean, these are not words that we preach very often. We, we do focus on God's love and God's grace, and, 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 and trust me, beloved, we, we will still get there, but we must recognize from the foundation that sin rightly offends God and angers him from a hatred. I mean, this tells us more succinctly than anything else how bad was it in Genesis 6? God regretted even creating man. It says later that he felt sorry that he had done it. Now, how can God feel sorry for for creating? What does that mean? Does it mean that that God has changed his mind? No, no. It doesn't mean that. Uh, It doesn't mean that he has repented of of his action, that he wished that he hadn't. It is more a comment of his deep sadness of what man has become. I think it's similar to uh, a story that I read about the invention of, of Mother's Day. Mother's Day was created by a woman named Anna Jarvis, and her purpose was, I want women and mothers to, to, to get the appreciation and the recognition for the thankless jobs that they do. She, she campaigned to, to create Mother's Day and to, to have a day where mothers were recognized. But she became deeply regretful of Mother's Day before too long. And she, in fact, came to a place where she said, I wish Mother's Day never existed. As we're told in a report from Reader's Digest, what turned her off was how quickly the day became commercialized. She was so put off that she dubbed the florist, greeting card, and confectionery industries charlatans, bandits, pirates, racketeers, kidnappers, and termites that would undermine with their greed one of the finest, noblest, and truest movements and celebrations. See, Anna Jarvis loved the idea of Mother's Day. God loved creating man in his image to be a masterpiece to display his glory. 
But because of what happened, because of the abuses that took over, like Anna Jarvis, God regretted that man existed. Because man has so corrupted their good purpose. When we look at this, we ask the question, has God changed his mind? What does that mean? Malachi 3.6 says God does not change his mind. So what is being said here when we see this emotional twisting in God? We must recognize this, that God is always opposed to sin, but he is also forbearing with judging. Another word for that is long-suffering. And what Genesis 6 is telling us is that God's forbearing has ceased. His time for judgment has come. And so from Genesis 6, we must learn the lesson We must learn the lesson from the days of Noah. His patience will end again. As Paul declared in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Four reasons why sin must be judged. Sin defies God's boundaries. Sin defiles God's creation. Sin desecrates God's image, and sin grieves God's heart. Beloved, judgment must come because sin is against God. The reality that judgment is a reality calls us to repentance. Believer and unbeliever, the word here for us is to repent of our sin. We must have God's heart towards sin. We must hate sin like God hates sin. We must seek to to repent of sin so that we would not grieve God. Grieve your sins before God and pursue repentance. Who can be saved? Despite the almost unrelenting focus on judgment in this chapter, and perhaps you would say in my sermon, this passage does show God's desire is for salvation. God's desire is for salvation. Look with me at verse 8. Despite all that we have read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor translates the same word that we use to translate grace. Even in the midst of this terrible scene, God still looks down and looks at one individual and offers grace. Notice that the word is found. Noah found grace. It's not that he earned it. It's not that he deserved it. It's not that he merited it. Noah most certainly was the best person on earth at this time, but that is not the reason that he is spared. Noah, the best on the earth, is still saved by grace alone. This text shows the totality of judgment and the certainty of judgment and the imminence of judgment so that we end at verse 8 and recognize That there is only one reason, only one way anyone is saved. And that is by God's grace. This is the thread that ties the passage 
back to hope. There is a thread in the fact that Noah found favor, that God's will is to save and not to destroy. How do we find God's grace? That is the question we all must seek. How do we find God's grace? God's grace is found in the son of Noah, Jesus Christ. God's grace is found in his son, Jesus. God's grace is found in this declaration, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Beloved, if you are not aware of the certainty and disaster of judgment that will come upon you outside of Christ, then I don't know what else to say. But I want you to hear and cling to the thread, the singular hope God has given that all who find themselves by faith in Jesus Christ will have God's favor upon them and they will be spared the day of wrath. Have you taken hold by faith the promise of Christ? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen?